Welcome to Life After Service. This is the audio-only version of this month's episode. You can watch now the original video documentary on YouTube, youtube.com slash podcast. Find out more on our website. All details in the episode description. This documentary episode features Gary and Renee Wilson. That's sort of what's kept us going together. I just know you're both on the same side. Yeah. No, you're not fighting. You're fighting with each other, not against each other. Mm. All around the country, Australians sign up and put their lives on the line to do their part to protect the nation and its interests. But when the day comes to hang up their uniform for the last time, it's the end of one chapter and the beginning of the next. In this series, we talk to some of our veterans about their life after service. Gary Wilson is an Army veteran of Timor and Afghanistan. He was attached to the 2nd Commando Regiment when, in June 2010, He narrowly survived a catastrophic helicopter crash in Afghanistan. He suffered a traumatic brain injury and woke from a coma months later. In season four of Life on the Line podcast, Thomas Kay spoke to Gary and his wife, Renee Wilson, in separate episodes about Gary's military career, their life together, and the crash that changed everything. Thomas caught up with the pair in their home in Canberra. He first spoke with Gary, with Renee sitting close by. So for life after service, we're talking about careers after their time in the military is finished up. Um, yours com- was completely flipped on its head um, after the accident. Would you be able to tell us how things changed for you and what you've done to get to where you are today? No. When I, w- I wake up from the <clears throat> in the hospital bed, I thought it was captured. I was like, this isn't right. Then realized that I can't walk and can't walk and couldn't talk back then. So my, shit, my career's over. What am I going to do with my, am I going to have a life or a career after this? And then having Renee and give me a good kick in the arse and help get me going again. Then finding through exercise and support and good diet as we learned um, how good home-cooked meals and stuff, how better health you can have. Um, then yeah, moving into um, the coaching and the PT space. And how, basically, how do you say, what are those key moments of when you sort of left? So when you went to try and study to going into personal training to where you are now and where you want to go? Well, I had to go through all um, neuropsych tests and stuff just so that I could go and study like university. And I passed the test to go, to go to university, but then the, trying to actually be on, on studies wise and like, having the distractions of other classmates and so it was just too hard for me to focus on studying and retaining information it's just okay maybe university isn't for me it's not for everyone um then back into TAFE software it's more hands-on learning which is more for my my style of learning but it's more hands-on and learning as you go and then moving into the PT space and well, this is where I want to be so it's I can work out really well here. What was it like changing 
career that a career that you've spent so long learning and adapting and sort of growing and then going okay i'm going to become a personal trainer now it's still it's one of those things it's hard for me to live like of even now i'm slowly learning the process like that i'm no no longer a soldier so this is my new career path and to identify myself as being a pt rather than being a soldier because a lot of the guys i know the first thing they say is i was a soldier so it's part of becoming the, the your new you. Have, have you found that a lot of the old, when I say the old you, I mean the old you that was when you're in the army, to the new you being you as a personal trainer, do you find that there's a, a bit of a mashup? Things that come across from your army training and so on that you've actually integrated into your life now? Um, not that I can really think of. I, I, I may may do that, but I don't actually cognitive. Don't I can't really think of it. Actually, that's actually part of my past and what it is now, so I'm sure Renee could tell you otherwise. Where did that sort of idea of the whole, you're telling people how to do their training routines and exercises and so on, where did that come from? Did that come from the PTs hammering you when you were training or? A little bit of it, um, yeah, I was just thinking like, shit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so. <laughs> so, 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 so as Renee says, like, there's a lot of synergies that um, like obstruction routines and being able to tell people what to not tell them what to do, but helping them to learn. They're doing things incorrectly, like spelling. Even I've got a, a stickler for that. So, so, have you found that any of the exercises and so on can um, help you with your journey to recovery? Well, as when um, found out more, we read. Uh, it's about how exercise is good for your brain health and that's what I'm trying to actually help myself and other people to prevent uh, neurological decline so as they get older, so for me, which because um, I'm much more susceptible to having neurological conditions later in life, so exercise and diet, good diet, the basic foundations to prevent that from occurring is the key points. Have you, are you still currently studying? I'm always studying, so I'm starting doing a course in nutrition at the moment about how they can help with brain health and keep reading all the books I read is basically on um, becoming more optimal as a human being, so. And since um, doing the personal training going into that journey, are you still having any relationship with the army or people that you previously deployed with or like friends? Yeah, we, um, we were in town, we're trying to catch up as much as we can, but most of it's all online, because especially with COVID, and just keeping contact through those kind of things, like through sending each other memes and jokes and catching up on how everyone's going, so. How, how'd you find adapting after, after leaving? Because it's very much a family community being in it, and then once you left, it's almost a different lifestyle. Well, it's because like, you leave and your family's gone, but they're not gone there. They're still there, just, you don't have to go and see them every day and still keep in contact with them through like, social media and that kind of stuff, so. In the podcast, Thomas and Gary spoke about Gary's brief stint as a professional actor in the play, The Long Way Home, with Gary playing an injured veteran. They spoke about it more for life after service. I was just thinking, like, with the, the play stuff, like, yeah, because um, one of the last shows we did in Perth, I, uh, 
our assistant director had to make sure I was wearing pants because my final scenes I walked forward, I'm wearing a hospital gown. I may have done a couple of shows with no pants on and the guys had like, the rest of the cast had remained like very like, still like they're at attention and they, <coughs> you know, a bit of giggles of seeing my ass crack because I, yeah. So Suzanne had to make sure I was wearing pants. You're dedicated to the role. <laughs> so it was one of the, it was one of the, um, the last shows they filmed. So I had that, so the, the show they filmed, I'm not wearing pants. So that was a funny little thing I could add to that. Earlier you said you're very much a method actor. So I guess, I guess that's one of those. Well, I wasn't wearing pants when I was in hospital, so. And one of the first things I do when I wake up was just check my junk and make sure I still had it, so. Apparently that's one of the, the first things people do with, with the interview. Even guys wouldn't do that, check make sure they have that part. That first, that, the That's the, the key priority, the focal point. Well, I guess it's a bit of a surprise. You don't know what's happened and then wake up and then do it. <laughs> That's over Renee in Germany. Um, the, her mum will find her in Germany, so I'm fully out to it in a bed. Renee's lifted the cheek, make sure it's still intact. And mum caught her. <laughs> uh, at that point, you hadn't started remembering any, anything. So, well, at least. So, yeah, well, I had um, so complete blackout for three months, thereabouts. Well, at least she was looking out for you then. Yeah, <laughs> she had the best interest at heart. <laughs> hey, Nay. <laughs> Would you ever get back into doing the acting? Nah. You did it, your time. It, was, it was fun, but it wasn't for me. Because when I first put my name forward for helping with the car, I, just, I thought it was, I put my name forward to say, help with script writing, help with cast and crew, like that kind of stuff behind the scenes. And they go, Come on, Gary, you're up on set. I'm like, no, I'll, I'll, I'll be right there. Come on, you've been ridden into this. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll give it a crack. And I had stage fright once. So I thought that was on an opening night in Sydney. Like, there's 900 people there. As I was behind to move on the first scene, but the, the shields for the scene, I'm like, fuck, there's 900 people here to judge us. And the guy on the other side of the screen goes like, yeah, we've, we've done enough in rehearsal, so just do the rehearsal. Just, you know, like in the army, just you learn the routine, you just learn the drills, just go through the drills. Nothing else can distract you, so yeah. It's a very weird experience. But it was a good thing that you did, and an incredible experience as well. And, and, like, and like this with Life on the Line, it's, it's very cathartic to be able to tell your story in there and the way that we've made a very um, theatrical version of it, so. It's, it's good for all involved being, to get it off their chest, so it's good. Well, getting into that point, how you said about it, it's about sharing the story, telling it, and it can help and um, help different people different ways as well. Um, how have you found that sort of reflecting on it, your accident? Like the, the more I share it, the more comfortable I am to actually tell certain parts about it. Was my biggest catch point for me is telling me how my what happened to me affected Renee. That's my biggest that's about um make her told me what happened because she I I was given a four percent chance of survival and here I am now of being a PT so which is pretty cool. Um but how it affected her and then how I'm getting better at telling that part of the story so she's pulling it all together. Yeah. 
You were also, since leaving, an ambassador for Soldier On. Yeah. What can you tell us about that? See, no, it's good to be involved with them to help support other veterans in our community and help them, help them on their road up to life after service. Now, how have you found on overall that sort of adaptation of when people leave to their, basically adapting to their life after service? Well, there are quite a few people who can't, haven't come to grips with the fact that their service life is there. And it was like a lot of guys like me, we didn't want to get wounded and kicked out essentially. Um, so then those people have had, they have, didn't have the right mindset to start to leave the defence, whereas other friends that have left the service on their own choice have made great careers out of, out of after the service. So it's all about mindset and having the right mindset to prepare yourself to leave and let go of back in the old days and back in my day and that kind of stuff. So. And it's, it's not just um, Ambassador for Soldier On and the personal training you're doing, but you've also competed in the Invictus Games. Yeah. But one of the other cast members from the play, he just went to the London Games and he said, give rowing a crack because I can't run. So rowing's a good sport and he won gold, so give that a crack. And rowing was, became my sport of choice and then did some seated discus and seated shot put. I uh, went to the Orlando Games in 2016 and the Toronto Games in 2017. So I got bronze in the seated discus. Good effort. Was, after my heat for the discus, I was like, okay. And they said, okay, Gary, hang around. And normally in the army, if someone says, hang around after this, you're in the shit. You're about to get beast of it. I'm like, what did I do wrong? And they said, you want bronze? I was like, <laughs> no, and the pair that we go back and the athletics coach goes to the rest of the cricketers, go on bronze, and they're like, everyone was, everyone was blown away that I actually won a medal. They're like, really? So, you know, so the photo of me like with my medal, my like completely still gobsmacked. So, <laughs> where someone says hang around, you go, what have I done wrong? But no. Would you compete again? Nah, because no. like Prince Harry said in Toronto, you beat these games. Is part of your move forward. Like, there's no, it's not an end goal. It's the end goal is further on past the game. So, just keep pushing forward. And I've done my, have I been my five minutes of fame? And now I don't need to do it again. It's an awesome journey, good experience. So, but now some of the others, other veterans who haven't competed yet to get and have their chance to see how much sport can heal. Do you feel it's uh, the Invictus Games is a good thing for helping veterans afterwards? It's better and their families because the families can come and support them and see and meet other families and see that their veteran is like it's like a pet like their veteran is affected like other other families and how other families are supporting them and then become we're all one massive community and you don't realise it so it's it's a good experience. In looking back on everything so far, um, what would you say is the most incremental moment that sort of changed everything for your life after service? Well, I'd say there's a couple of key points for me. Is, well, one was, um, even when I was in hospital, I was in a pretty bad way. I was like, shit, my career's over, my life's over. I can't walk up because I was still 
No one wiped me in bed, I couldn't move, couldn't get up. I asked her and I said, why are you still here? I thought she would have like, just gone, put me in a too hard basket and left. And she says, I love you, I'm saying, I'm saying. I'm like, okay, well, she fought for me to get the so I'm gonna keep fighting, keep, get better and that stuff. So one of the first things I said, I learned how to speak again after waking up from the coma was, I love you and I still want to marry you. And so that got me some points. <laughs> uh, that and then the other one was when I got my motorbike license and get back in. Because before the crash, if I was in a bad mood, I'd go for a ride. It was my way, it was my meditation, mindfulness, just focusing on the task at hand. And I missed that trying to get back on the bikes. And <clears throat> for years, I was like a teddy for the Suzuki logo and stuff because I was all about getting Suzuki's. After the crash and trying to ride back onto another Suzuki, my knee was in pain, I couldn't change gears properly. <sighs> so I had to go and buy a Harley. I was bagging Harleys for years and I had to go and buy one. So everyone has this ridiculed me endlessly for you now being a turncoat. <laughs> but that's good fun. You, you, you're happy you made that choice though, going with a Harley? It's good fun and I'm now connecting with the Veteran Motorcycle Club and They'll have all kinds of bikes, but Harley's kind of like the, 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 the bike du jour. Yeah. I guess, I guess it's kind of like a, going from a, it's a big change going from a Suzuki to yeah. a Harley. I like the V-twin noise, like, I like the, with a lot of torque. Like, okay, well, and the Suzuki bike, their big bike was too heavy for me, so I found a smaller Harley-ish, and then I'm like, yeah, this is fun. How long did it take to win you over? Um, when I took it for a test ride, I was like, oh, give it a go, and I chose the bike, so I had the mid-pegs, mid I'm like, yeah, give it a go, and first open up, like, like just as a pullback at the talk, I'm like, well, this is good, they're nice and loud, so I like loud bikes. How, 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 how do your neighbours feel about it? Don't care. <laughs> 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 they say, like, loud pipes save lives, so... That's true, they can, <laughs> they can hear you come in. Yeah. So you, you, when looking back, you'd say that basically waking up and being, having Renee there still um, and saying, do you want to get married still? Yeah. And the getting the motorbike, that's your two sort of key moments. And other things like the kids and birth of the kids and you're like, oh shit, like I have a lot more to focus on now. And filming, having them for years before, when I was pregnant, it was um, like, when we have kids, they're gonna have to be born wearing helmets because they're gonna be insane, they're gonna be nuts. And sure enough, they are, which is my, one of my motivation points is that I have to learn how to run because our kids are gonna be like just big runners and just fast, you have to try and catch them at all stages and sure enough, they're insanely fast and into everything. So I have to be on top of them and catch up with them. So yeah, having the kids to be on, incentivize me to be able to get back into running and back as fit as I can to try and keep up with them. Well, in, in the podcast, it was said that you always wanted to be a stay-at-home dad. <laughs> well, I did joke, I was like, that would be easy. It's, it's not easy at all. It's, it's hard work, but at the same time, like, it's fun. It's just totally insane. <laughs> you wouldn't change a thing? Not really, no. But it could like, make it listen more. I couldn't change it. It's all part of the chair. Yeah, it is. Thomas then spoke with Renee. 
and her journey. One part that has been um, very much part of the recovery journey is your relationship with your mother-in-law. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Thank God we get along. <laughs> I think it was the accident very much brought us together. Um, we were a pillar of support for each other um, all the way through Gary's recovery and pretty much just acted like a bit of a team when it came to supporting him in the rehab hospital um, and when I had to go back to work she was there and so we always had one of us with him um, and then yeah subsequent to that she was she was there with us when we transitioned him back to home and has been there through all the key points ever since so um, yeah we we get along very well um, I love having her around she definitely takes the pressure off the household when she's around because it's just helpful to have sort of someone else um, who can do and, and it's just an accumulation of little things every now and then um, but very fortunate to have her um, and yeah I think also lucky that I think I welcome it um, because I imagine for some people um, and for some women in particular you know having um, your mother-in-law around can be quite intimidating um, for me it's been exceptionally helpful um, so I think bringing that sort of mindset to it has really helped. Do you think that uh, having the fact that you had Gary's mum there with you for, for the recovery journey and from then on um, helped cope with what was going on as opposed to people who may not have a second person with them? Absolutely. Um, we, we very much relied on each other in the early days. Um, there was only one point where we both got upset at once and that, and I think that made us even more upset because it was like, if one of us was upset, the other one could bring us back up and made us feel like um, there was still some hope. Um, but one day in particular, we both just hit this low point together and it almost felt like there was, well, if we've both lost it, there's nothing left. Um, but I think experiencing that has, and sort of walking that journey together definitely brought us closer. We only knew each other for probably oh, maybe about 12 months prior to that. And it was kind of just the visits. So you only knew each other on a very surface level. And we saw, you know, sides of each other that I probably even haven't shown to my own parents. Um, and I saw vulnerabilities in her that I know she's never shown anyone since. Um, and I still see that now. So it's interesting. I can see straight through her big, strong, um, tough exterior, um, but I'm not sure many other people do. Um, and it's just, it's really helped because with that, we've been able to sort of bond um, and we can, we know what each other's talking about. I've been able to share vulnerabilities with her that I've not with other people um, and, and just be very upfront and straight with each other, which I think is good. Mindset seems to be a big part of what the two of you put in place together yeah. for the whole once the service finished um would you say that that is going to be something that you're going to put on with your kids and everything going forward it's definitely harder with kids um because they don't have adult brains <laughs> i think with adults you can sort of talk a lot of logic and they can kind of understand it and then it'll pique their interest and they'll well certainly this is how it works with me I'll go and learn more and then when I've learned enough to satisfy my understanding I'll go okay and I'll you know start to change my mindset or shift how I think about things or try new things 
but with kids not having that and not having the ability to understand sort of the logic um, it's very different you're dealing with pure emotion um, and I'm not sure I know exactly how to deal with that yet um, would, would you say that mindset makes all the different or can make that difference when it comes to a recovery or adapting to a different scenario that you may not have expected yes it's complicated though because it can be very much you can have that sort of base mindset there um, but if you become mentally ill it becomes hidden and harder to access and you need to find the right tool to trigger it um, which will then enable you to sort of go on the journey to sort of find that strength that you have within yourself um, to pull you out so mental illness really complicates it but you all you still have a choice about how you're going to deal with what's happening um, and there's a lot of exploratory work that we all need to do as individuals in order to sort of understand how that works and how best we can access that but if you don't make a choice you can, you can basically and now I'm going to sound like a um, TED speaker you can choose to be a victim or a victor um, but you do so when the accident happened I could choose to wallow in my grief and give up and walk away um, and let go of the relationship that I thought I had lost or I could choose to stay and fight for it um, which is what I did and you know when Gary left and um, well, left the army and he was sort of going struggling to let go of it um, because the army has very much been his identity since he was 17 he could choose to keep that um, or he could turn himself into something else um, and so my job in helping him along that was just to help him identify where his interests were and to help pique the curiosity in him to explore that so that he could let go of the other identity that he had. Did you still have that family community environment once you left? That where you, in the podcast, you initially said that you you had that feeling and knew that you'd never walk alone again. Yeah. Was that continued? Yes, it's definitely still there. Um, however, you, it's kind of like when you grow up and you leave home. So your family's not always there. It's not as easy to access. The onus is on you to go out and, you know, pick up the phone and call them or to go and visit. Or if you're in location, tell them where you are. Um, so it's just, it's pretty much a bit like that. It's like you've grown up children and you've now left the nest for the second time, just a different nest. Um, and now it's, it's very much on you to create those bonds and to continue those bonds. But I know that should anything happen to Gary, should anything happen to us, um, should I need any support from any of the guys that I now class as my brothers, I could just pick up the phone and say, I'm not okay, things are not okay, and they would be here. Um, so yeah, those bonds never go anywhere. With the change in career from going from a clear set, uh, knowing exactly where Gary wants to go, mm -hmm. and then having that army lifestyle and then going, okay, everything's going to change. That life afterwards and the careers and building out afterwards, um, how would you summarise all of that? It's a big change and it's scary. So for me, when I met Gary, I was, you know, I mean, I'd always had my own career hopes and desires, but 
Um, I always felt secure knowing he was in the army and we would always, you know, have a home and we wouldn't have to battle. I wouldn't have to go through the financial pressures that my fam my parents had to go through because they both had sort of, you know, I guess the run-of-the-mill middle-class jobs. Um, but we wouldn't have to battle and we would always have money, we would always have security. Um, so when all of that kind of seems to be taken away, it, it does, it, like I mentioned before, it feels like you're on your own again. Um, and it definitely felt like it put a lot more pressure on me um, and I needed to just keep pushing forward with my career because I would now need to supplement um, the money and the security that we were getting from the army. Um, in terms of my professional career and my job security. So um, I feel that pressure and I know Gary jokes about being a stay-at-home dad and how difficult that is, but I also have the sympathy for the dads that go out there and work and are, you know, the ones that, that feel the pressure and responsibility to keep their families secure. You're also keeping yourself busy because you've got your professional, professional career, mm. but then you've also just picked up something new. Um, which you're doing in your own time as well. Could you tell us about War Widows? So War Widows is my current professional job, which is good, thank God. Um, so I spent, um, since I left uni, I spent 13, 13 14 years working in government, um, trained as a lawyer, but discovered halfway through I didn't want to be a lawyer because you couldn't actually help people. Um, well, I didn't think you could anyway. Um, so I'd spent, when I'd met, when I'd moved to Sydney with Gary, I was able to spend some time practicing a particular type of law where I was having a positive impact on people's lives um, and helping them manage loss of loved ones. So that, that was exceptionally rewarding. And when I couldn't stay in that, I had no interest in staying in that. Um, fortunately, I was able to move into, um, back into the federal government and into sort of more policy work, which is where I sort of what I really liked doing um, and because we had just experienced a whole bunch of gaps in the veteran support system that existed at the time, um, I was brought in to help Veterans Affairs transform their organisation into a more responsive and agile organisation and one that catered for the needs of their contemporary cohort. Um, and that again was exceptionally rewarding. It was challenging, but it was rewarding. But it was back in the federal government, it was my bread and butter, and it was a subject that I knew a lot about. Um, and so I stuck with that for, for quite a while and only about two years ago now decided that I needed to step away for a bit. Um, so I moved, <laughs> didn't really change portfolios, just moved to another department in the same portfolio um, and, and basically just did a job that I didn't need to think about. and. Um, made myself underemployed, if that makes sense, um, and then realised all the challenges that come along with that. So it's a very long way of saying um, I was picked up to do a job outside of the government. This is my first time outside um, and to do a job which is very similar to what I did in DVA, which is to bring Australian war widows um, into their new generation. Um, and to transform that organisation into one that represents and supports all families and women that have been impacted by Defence Service, which is a cause that's very close to my heart. Would you be able to tell us more about sort of the, the old to the new and what, how you're going to see that change and how it's going to actually change lives? 
For me, there is a significant gap in the current veteran support system, which is families. Um, and, and, by f and I mean families in a very general sense, but in particular, I mean civilian families. So if I had worn a uniform, there are a plethora of supports out there for me. Um, now, the issue isn't the number of supports, the issue is accessibility. So there's, a, there's an issue of how I can access what's out there for me, but nonetheless, there is a safety net out there to capture me. As a civilian, those safe, that safety net is not as coherent, it's not as robust, yet I still manage the impacts of military service every day. Um, so for me, that, and there has been this need for a very long time. Um, I noticed it pretty much day one after Gary's accident. There, you know, was a number of systems that were already in place to wrap around the widows, which is great and as, as it should have been, but, but for, you know, a couple of people in the regiment at the time, I effectively would have walked that journey on my own. But for the bonds that we had already created with others, um, I would have been sort of almost isolated being the civilian in the group that wasn't a widow. Um, and even worse for someone like Gary's mum, who wasn't the widow, isn't the fiance, isn't the wife. Um, so there's just, for me, and it's become glaringly obvious, particularly after events like Invictus. Invictus was the first one that I had seen that really um, respected and honoured the role of families, particularly post-injury, um, and the families of those that are managing and supporting people with mental, um, mental injuries themselves. So it just, the more and more I realised how isolated we all are, um, I really want to build that community. I really want people to recognise that they're part of that community and that they're not alone. Um, that there is a significant network of, of women and families that are out there um, that have all worked a, walked a similar journey. Um, one of the very lovely war widows put it so nicely the other day when I was telling her about my experience and first thing she said to me was she's like we just we have this bond that transcends you know any form of generational gap or geographical gap and that's what we're connecting on and and I think she's exactly right and for me it's that's out there and if we can help to fill that need in the community I think we're going to equip the families much better um, to look after themselves and then if they can look after themselves hopefully we can have a positive impact on potential intergenerational trauma and then have a positive impact on, on the veterans themselves and their long-term health and well-being. It sounds like quite a task. Yeah, it's no, no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> How long do you think it would take to put something like that in place? Well, I don't know. I've never done this before. <laughs> and I guess that's sort of the ultimate vision and goal. Um, it's, I think it will, be, it will be difficult because there hasn't been such a broad network um, or a broad community before. Um, so I think part of the challenge will be getting people to identify as being part of that um, and you know, getting people to realise that perhaps they need it. Um, so it's, it'll, be, it'll be a challenge. Um, I think we're, we're already starting to move towards that direction now. Hopefully we'll have some significant progress in the next 12 months, but um, 
yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a long-term journey. I hope that I can look back in 10 or 20 years' time and go, wow, look at that. That's amazing. What do you think, um, talking life after service, one of the main things that sort of helps people or could be that turning factor is in changing someone's life from going from a, a career in the military to a career as a civilian? I actually have a hypothesis around this um, and if I had some time I would do the research to prove that I'm right. Um, so, um, I, I honestly think someone's ability to transition well all comes back to their concept of self and identity um, and how much when they enter the Defence Forces they identify or need that um, the identity that the military gives them. Um, versus someone who enters very much knowing who they are, very much understanding what they think their purpose is and where they want to be, and the military is a stepping stone. Um, so we talked about mindset earlier. I think it all rolls back to the mindset that you're entering with. If you're entering kind of not really knowing what you want to do, um, but wanting and needing and yearning for the structure that it provides, the military will give you an identity. For me, those people make a much, it's much harder for them to transition, it's much harder for them to let go because without that identity, there's almost like there's no meaning, there's no purpose. It's the job is what they've become. Um, and it takes a lot of um, a lot of commitment and a lot of introspection to be able to realise that that's not who you are. That was a flash in the pan, that was a career um, and, and you actually need to work to identify sort of what now and, and what is your identity and, and who are you and why are we all here and all those big esoteric questions that we don't have time to answer. Um, my hypothesis is if we can do more work around personal development for those people as they're leaving, um, who should be fairly easy to identify on the way in, we can make a lot of impacts, um, positive impacts, and allow them to transition more effectively and more quickly. I also suspect that um, you will find that it is the non-commissioned officers or the diggers or whatever they're called in the other services that also struggle to let go because for them it's a very different journey through the military as opposed to the officers who have a very professional career. They learn different skill sets. The officers go through leadership training, personal development training, um, whereas the non-commissioned officers don't do that. So I think that there is a distinction um, and, and there will be different paths, but I think if we can intervene with more, more of that at the back end, knowing how people are coming in, um, people will do a lot better. So is that what's going to be next for you after you've flipped War Widows? Oh look, I don't know, I don't know. Um, I would hope that the research would be done by then um, and we would be able to sort of do that. But um, look, I, I, in short, I don't think so. I think my space is with the families and my space is with the women um, because obviously I am one. Um, I see. I can't begin to imagine what it is like to walk in the shoes of a veteran um, and to walk into the army, you know, not knowing who you are and, and walk out not wanting to let go of that. And I think it needs somebody with that lived experience to take that. And there's thousands of them out there. So I'm sure one of them will take up the, the challenge. So hear your message. 
Yeah, that's right. Might even be the guy standing behind me who might do it. Thomas then finally spoke with Gary and Renee in a joint interview. Well, together um, with Life After Service, how have you found that transition um, for thinking about each other? From going from the whole recovery journey to where you are today to where you will be in five, ten years' time. Everyone's looking at me. <laughs> I guess I'll oh, well, start now. No, you start. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> and I'll correct you. <laughs> but it is just that. It's a journey. Um, and it's probably impossible to plan too far ahead. I love planning. I'm a bit of a perfectionist and have OCD tendencies. So it's... <laughs> um, great fun. <laughs> but I've also learned that I can't plan too far ahead because the only constant is change. So I think it's just following the curiosity and seeing where we go. You know, even in taking this job, it's mm. technically only a 12-month job. I'm not sure what will come next. I hope I'll keep it for more than 12 months. But, um, yeah, it's, it's for me, the big learning has been learning to roll with it more than anything else. Yeah, improvise. Improvise. Yeah. So about improvising. I think for you it's been a lot about role switching. And being a stay-at-home dad. And, and study. Trying to, and trying to study because I, I, I hated school. Mm. I absolutely hated it. I joined the army to have to study. Yeah, then all this stuff now I have to do study and learning. Self-directed study at that. It's bloody hard. If, if you had to give advice to another couple that was in the same shoes as you, um, what would be one or two things that you tell them? Empathy. Mm. Work together. Yeah, really just, what it, there's, a, there's a hack. I think it's a, some form of life hack where if you're about to yell at somebody, you just stop and you count to 10 or 7 or whatever. Like, and it's in that split second, that's enough just to sort of stem the, the flow of emotion that's happening so you can see a bit more clearly. Um, but, and I, and I'm learning more, but the more I stop myself, um, particularly when he's doing something that's just irritating <laughs> me, um, if I can, if I can intervene and I stop myself and have that empathy and go, okay, not only is he, is he used to routine, um, and now there's almost none. Um, and not only that, but he has a brain injury. So, you know, I do have to repeat myself and I hate it but I have to do it um, or I have to nag or, you know, when I can have that empathy for him and understand where he's at, that's helpful. And then for him, he's been a bit like that with me, particularly when I was quite mentally unwell, having the empathy that half of what he was telling me, I couldn't actually understand. Um, that's sort of what's kept us going together. And just know you're both on the same side. Yeah. You know, you're not fighting, you're fighting with each other, not against each other. Mm. When you met, you both had a difference of opinions on <laughs> a few things, um, Gold Coast being one of them. Have either of you changed your mind on the Gold Coast now? No, we're both just as stubborn. <laughs> we both hold our own views and we both continue to hold them very strongly. But I think it's, um, you also reached the point, well, I've certainly reached the point where I'm like, I just need to disengage. <laughs> the more I engage, the more it fuels the fire. So we just okay. let it go. Nice champ. <laughs> and we champ each other a lot. The other thing um, 
that I wanted to bring up was the wedding day. So there's March, <laughs> April, and then following on from October 2010. 2411. Got it right now. Yeah. yeah. I always remember that I could, I could confuse it with the month and mm. the number. I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> so it's your excuse for those other times. I don't know. The fact yeah. that I was reorganising the wedding and had multiple dates, but I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. So what day is it? Today. No. Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> what day did we get married? The second. Of? April. Yeah. What year? 2011. Okay. High fives. <laughs> <laughs> From everything that's happened, what are some things that you find, you think would be, there's room to be learned from for going forward? So with your role in War Widows, mm -hmm. there's quite a bit there, but maybe together, what are some different aspects that you think could save relationships, lives down the track? What would be some notable points? For me, I think the support that Gary has provided me when I was so um, unwell with depression and anxiety has been what's kept us together. I, um, I watched, as a child, I watched my parents' relationship fall apart because my dad didn't know how to support my mum and my mum didn't know what was happening to her. Um, but for Gary, he, it, it rolls back to the empathy again, but he really took the time to learn about what was happening to me because I didn't have the capacity to understand it. Um, and he took the time to understand it. And no, many, <laughs> no matter how many times I said to him, maybe, you should, maybe we should just call it quits, it was never a, an okay, fine. It was always no. Um, or he just let me have my vent and know that at the end it would all calm down. Um, but I think that it provides an easy option because you just get into this spiral where you don't understand what you're saying. You can't understand what people are telling you. You can only understand how it's feeling and you just want it to stop. Um, and him taking the time to understand about the conditions and what was happening and to be there to help me engage in the right treatments when I needed it um, <coughs> has been what's protected us, I think. Yeah, just basically just being there, you don't have to say anything because I was saying, I was trying to talk and trying, trying to fix trying, 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 trying to fix things as I do. Uh, but you don't have to just be there. Just, when they do calm down, you're there and, mm. and like, like I said before, you're on the same team, so keep supporting each other. And we don't want to have to use Tinder again. Or Tinder ever. We've yeah, never yeah, used Tinder. Never use Tinder. Tinder again. <laughs> Where did that come from? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so yeah, the, <laughs> stay tuned, what the hell? <laughs> oh dear, no. So roles have effectively switched from when you were in the army and to now you're effectively stay-at-home dad as well as a personal trainer. So how would you say that's changed things, the dynamic between the two of you as well? Um, yeah, I think we've definitely switched around. When um, Gary was in the army, it was all, you know, his career was, was first and was primary and mine was secondary. Um, that's obviously 
switched around now, but to, you know, being that primary support network for him or primary support pillar for him um, as he sort of recovered and, and got better again, that switched. Mm. Um, and it's for you to let go of my recovery. Yeah. And, and let me actually support you rather than vice versa. Yeah, that's really hard. Mm. They, I mean, you never, you don't really know, you don't learn how to be a carer in the first place, but you know, you kind of just go with your instincts and you just jump in boots and all and do all of that stuff. But then you need to figure out how to undo all of that and how to pull back. And, and I, yeah, I still very much struggle mm. with that. It's, yeah. Uh, allowing, allowing me to be independent and yeah. do things by myself. And yeah. Yeah. We're getting there. A lack of control makes me really scared because the last time... I had no control over what was happening. He almost died. So it's, yeah, still dealing with that. You've also kept yourselves busy by setting up the Wilson Initiative. What can you tell us about that? Well, that's, that's a relatively, well, I guess the concept's always kind of been there. Um, you know, ever since we started to get out more and sort of tell our stories, we're keen to, to do that because we want people to see that just because something shit happens, it doesn't mean that that's your whole life. You know, you can it come out the other side. And it doesn't define you like, yeah. your injuries are, whatever you've been through, whatever happened to you, isn't who you are as a person. Like, like we're created, like there's yeah. a part of your life like that's now helped you get to where you are currently. Yeah, so we want people to hopefully see the, the, light, in, the light at the end of their tunnel. Um, so the, once, um, once, once COVID goes away a bit, uh, we will, we'll probably hopefully get back out there a bit more and do some of that. But the, um, what we're doing at the moment, it's, is a sort of a side project which sits under that banner, um, which is basically making face masks, selling them, um, and the profits of the face masks are being pulled and they'll be donated towards the Invictus Family and Friends program um, once Invictus gets going again in Australia. So the and my focus there is again rolling back to community and wanting to have some form of activity um, that that money can fund which will build social cohesiveness in that group so that when the games end because it is such a great experience and you are on this massive high they know that there's a support network for them. So the athletes get to build that all the way through as they go through the journey of getting ready for competition and competing and post and, you know, they still have their network, but the families are only brought together for, for one event and a flash in the pan. So it's um, being able to have an activity that will bring them together and will break down the barriers is, is what I'm really trying to do with the money that's being pulled from that. Um, and unfortunately, I'm making all the masks on my own because he can't cut material. <laughs> uh, I can't, sorry. Yeah. It's safer, I'm helping everyone by not touching him. Yeah. Could be a good skill down the track. But... Maybe. Later. Later, after you've learned how to play guitar. Yeah. Looking over everything, what is one thing that you, if you could change something in your after service time? What would it be? Anything. Um, because if you change it, would you change where yeah, you are currently? So. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, I, I'm not sure that I would actually 
change anything, if I could have a little bit of a do-over, it would have probably been to just be present a lot more when the kids were babies, I think. But I think that's the thing for a lot of women, when you kind of realise that you're not going to have any more kids and that period is just so difficult um, that, yeah, it just, it really does go by in the blink of an eye. So to just have been more present and to have better and longer lasting memories because I was there with them while they were babies and playing with them and spending time with them and not trying to do everything else um, is is probably a, a if I could have a second chance I'd do better at that I think well thank you for today I think it is time to put your personal training skills to the test yeah, right. and give us a run for our money you you come and see Oh, I'll just smash it. No, no, it's rhetorical. You're coming here. Yeah, that's fine. Beat you any day, Wilson. (sighs) Be cool. (laughs) Be cool. After their chat, Gary put Thomas and another Thistle Productions crew member, Rohan Viswalingham, through their paces. Press, bend over road, ball stands or sit-ups. Whilst you complete the 20 calories, then swap. Pressing up overhead. Yep. And van down like an easy overhead. Twist heads to the hips and hips and arms. Push, long push. Yeah, head down, Nick. Head down. Good. Ball stands, choose your poison. Up high, and like trying to pull it this high, hold on through the ground. The whole core, basically, got good, good, good. Push your legs. Head down, good. Great. Push up, full core. Like trying to drive it through the ground. Good. Go. Good work. And the exercise is exertion, so push it. Push. The 69 turn to get to 81. Good. Good one. Well done. It's full body rock, so 70% legs, 20% hips, 10% through the arms, so more power through your legs, but when you get to the end, rock back a little bit, so you get, get more length out of the, out of the, um, the chain. Push, lean back, lean back in your knees, you're almost straight. Now we go, Michelle. How long are you want to eat? Let's go. So you go, keep push, push, keep breathing. Push, see. Lean back in more. Lean back, lean back. Give the neck nice and straight. 
When the shots crack around you, you remember the high. But it wasn't excitement, it was just terrifying. The steel tore through clothing, mud walls, trees and flesh As I emptied my mag towards nothing at best And as I crawled forward and I looked through me sights I turned and saw Loudy give a wink and a smile He shouted with me as he sprung to his feet With his gun up and firing out into the green and the dirt Tried to burn.